0: Hello again all my gorgeous listeners and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Glow West podcast where we chat all about the wonderful world of sex, sexuality and the body. I'm your host Dr Caroline West and as always I'm delighted to be part of the Tortoise Shack Network where you can find tons of content on politics, culture, society and of course my favourite topic of sex. If you like what we do please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack to help keep the mics up and running or if you want to please pop over to Apple and Ray and review. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, the Twitter and Instagram is at Podcast. So now, the November 30th is the International Day of Consent, and we obviously talk about consent a lot on the podcast, but today we're going to look at one particular aspect, and we're going to look at it through the lens of positive sexual rights. So what does that actually mean? Well, to explain that today, joining me are Dr. Shivano Higgins, who is the Active Consent Programme Team co-lead, and very soon to be also another doctor, is Dr. Dr. Almost Siobhan Healy-Cullen who is the Research Associate with Active Consent. To Siobhan today how are you both keeping? I'm going to call Siobhan Healy-Cullen Siobhan HC so our listeners can figure out which Siobhan is which going. So uh, Siobhan HC how are you today? I'm doing very well Caroline thank you so much for
1: having us on the podcast today delighted to be here. A delight a delight and Siobhan O'Higgins how are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you very much. And again, it's very nice to be here. And thanks for inviting us, the two Shavons and Caroline. Deadly. So SSC today.
0: Um, yeah. Usually that sounds for something else, but we won't get into that today on the podcast. <laughs> um, so Siobhan, talk to us through first of all, like what is a positive sexual right? That sounds maybe confusing for some people if they don't, you know, work, are not familiar, I suppose, with this kind of area. But what is that?
1: Well, we come from an understanding the WHO has defined it very well in that, you know, being able to express your sexuality. And it's about being positive and respectful and in, in your sexual relationships and having the possibility of having pleasurable and safe sexual experiences. So sexual rights of all people need to be respected, protected and fulfilled. And that sounds like a huge sort of ask. And often that kind of understanding of sexual rights, it can be unachievable and irrelevant and very difficult for lots of people in the world. But it's a really good aspiration to have because exploring one's sexuality is a very natural part of being a human being.
0: Mm, Absolutely. And I suppose the sexual rights include things like freedom from coercion and understanding of what consent actually is like relationship skills, because we don't equip people at the moment with relationship skills and how to figure out what a healthy relationship is and, and not. Um, and it also mentions agency. So what does that really mean in this particular context?
1: Well, it's understanding yourself, your, your own body and your own boundaries, and then being respectful and trying to understand other people's as well. You know, sexual agency is being able to express your sexuality and explore your sexual activity without hurting or um, coercing or forcing other people to do what you want them to do where they may not want to so it's about being very aware of how to communicate and have open communication respectful communication and accepting of yourself of sexuality your body their body all of that and to understand also that you know sex is about pleasure
0: I I mean, that's part of sexual agency
1: as well, I think.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Not just for procreation, also for pleasure, which is awesome. Um, And Siobhan HC, you know, we we work with Active Consent to to do research with young people in Ireland. I think a lot of them, I think it's no surprise to hear that they are very dissatisfied with their sex education. I think that would be a, a very fair statement to say.
2: Yeah, I think, um, I think in general, Ireland has a complicated history with sex and sexuality, and that's reflected in the kind of pedagogical systems that we have in the mainstream schooling system. So I suppose active consent is kind of something something different that happens alongside of that, that students now in secondary schools and in third level have access to. So it's just another just another mode of sexuality education for students and young people in Ireland to tap into. Um, So it does really consider sexual rights and agency of young people, um, but it also reaches beyond the kind of the responsibilization of the individual to consider the social and cultural context, which is something that Young people don't necessarily get access to a maybe mainstream sexuality education, which is very much just focused on kind of the biological aspects of of sex. So I think our programme really kind of stands aside in that it situates individuals within their kind of broader communities. And it really shifts that focus to the interconnectedness of sex, you know, kind of between people rather than on just being a kind of a self-managing individual sexual citizen. So I think Active Consent really stands out in that regard.
0: I think that's a really good point because, you know, what we've said in some of the workshops and um, looking, I suppose, at at the the spectrum of sexual violence that, like, it's really hard for, like, one person to understand all the systems that go into sexual violence from racism, homophobia, sexism, ableism, and then, like, the institutional and structural approaches as well. Um, Like, Siobhan O'Higgins, how do we tackle that? How do we actually help young people understand that and not just throw them to the wolves and expect them to understand all this structural approach themselves.
1: Well, I think you have to start young and have realistic conversations with your children about how to um, establish respectful and positive relationships with people around them. And that's not just about sexual relationships. It's about relationships in general, because having a sexual relationship is just adding another layer to a relationship that is based on respect and understanding someone else's boundaries because somebody might not want to, you know, play tennis with you all the time, but that's okay, you know, but you still like them, you know, and it's respecting what they do want to do and not want to do. But, I mean, understanding all the nuance and all the cultural things and the history of how we've come to where we are and how it's acceptable in this society or in any society to actually express your sexuality is a huge ask, but it's it's really about... Giving young people the skills to build respectful relationships, understand their boundaries and, you know, look at where they're getting their information from and to be more critical about it and to say, okay, so is that real? You know, you know, it's in it's in everything that young people are looking for. And because their relationships and sexuality education may not be the best or fulfilling the needs for information that they need in school and their parents may not feel um okay about talking about things like relationships and sexuality with them because they didn't get good sex education it's about giving them the skills to actually be able to discern well actually this is real and this isn't real you know and that's really really difficult but it's a it is a huge task but we've been doing this for centuries and we're still here so it's still what it is working and people do have good fulfilling loving relationships and have great sex so you know it does work eventually but it's about dealing with all these other things which are negatively affecting people's um, aspirations and expectations of how to be sexual.
0: Mm, I think I think that's a really good point. I think one of the, the barriers that get in the way of the, that lovely, lovely healthy scenario are things like language and confidence. Like what we might have previously said about consent was just say no or just say yes and that's fine. And obviously that's nowhere near as in-depth enough. It's like drugs, just say no. It's like yeah we kind of need a bit more information than that and I know Siobhan um HC you are very passionate about that like moving away from that simplistic nature of just say no it's fine and how so how do we empower young people to move beyond that conversation find the language that works for them
2: Yeah, I think we can kind of um, draw on previous experience to see that campaigns such as just say no when it comes to drugs and the likes aren't necessarily successful (laughs) um, or the best for young people. So, um, again, they kind of draw on that real individualized kind of approach to education, um, whereas active consent and more kind of social oriented programs recognize that we need to do more than just equip folks with skills to know when no means no, um, because we do have research. You know, that suggests that a lot of people do maybe actually recognize when people are saying no. You know, we're quite good social. um, We're very good at picking up social cues. And so, you know, a woman can be resisting or saying no through kind of maybe implicit communication practices. Um, But this can maybe sometimes be ignored because it's more important in our particular kind of social context context. for young men to acquire sexual experiences because it kind of operates as social capital for for young men, you know it's it's more complicated in that instance than 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 just saying no there's all of these. um, kind of sexual scripts that we have that men are always up for sex and keen initiators and women have to be kind of the gatekeepers of those sexual um, initiations. And so it's much harder when you kind of consider that broader social context of how men are trying to perform their masculinity in certain ways. And there's very um, confined ways that women can also do sexuality and be sexual. You know, there's um, very limited parameters that women can express a kind of a, a very enthusiastic sexuality.
0: Mm. And I think you know that that's something that we've kind of found in in, in active consent research and especially you, you know I think our secondary schools report was quite shocking in that way that a lot of girls were having sex and they just really didn't want to but they thought that everyone else was doing it and everyone else was having a great time and that's what they should be doing and um, Siphano Higgins I know you, you worked on, on that particular report and it was It's quite depressing, you know, when we have all these young people having sex that they don't really want to be having or isn't satisfying, but yet they're having them because everyone else is having it or they think everyone else is having it and they think everyone else is having a great time.
1: What do we do with that? Well, that's all to do with your perception of what everybody else in your group is doing or saying they're doing. And people lie, and especially on social media, they lie an awful lot. Like, you they're, know, all having they're having a great time, <laughs> life and all that kind of stuff, you know. And it's very miscon—it's very difficult for young people to disentangle that. So, what we do in our resources is we share with um, people. Our data which actually shows that there's a big social norm gap there's a difference between how comfortable people feel themselves and how comfortable they think other people are doing various levels of sexual intimacy and when you show young people that you know everybody's just like them and everybody's just as um uncomfortable or confused or unsure as they are that allows them to make different decisions because if you think that everybody else is doing it which is how young people view drugs and sex and alcohol and all sorts of things. If you think everybody else is doing it, then you feel under pressure to do things you may not feel comfortable doing because you don't want to stand out. You don't want to be different from the crowd. It's very important to be um, acceptable, to, to be seen as like everybody else, not to be seen as odd or weird or all those kind of things um which are real fears for young people especially through social media and a lot of um sexual encounters we know from sort of hookup culture that seems to be um very pervasive in third level that it's all about performance and it's not really about emotions and it's about what people will say afterwards about you so it's about judgment so there's all of that going on it's it's difficult but you know understanding that everybody is just as unsure as you are is is just um a light bulb moment for a lot of young people because then that allows them to say, oh, okay, well, actually, I'm not really comfortable with that. Could we try this instead? And it's difficult to admit that you don't know what that's going to be like. You don't know if you want that if you've never had it. So um, let's just try and be a bit more open and less judgmental. And that's what it's about, really giving people that freedom to actually say, "I, I, I don't know if I'd like that. Can we try it and if i don't like it can we stop and to yeah. be able to say that is such a freedom for people
0: absolutely quite liberating and i know like you, you've said before you know some of the analogies around consent when we're talking about you know positive sex education that looks like consent is the fries analogy and that involves um the e stands for enthusiastic and when you're saying that's not really a great way to phrase this
1: no because then you're actually if you're saying that this is the boxes you have to tick to say that this um, this encounter was consensual if you weren't enthusiastic about it then you then obviously it wasn't consensual but in fact how can you be enthusiastic about something you've never tried so you've already failed if that's the definition of consent that you're using so we need to have definitions around okay so was is this consensual you know have i have i sort of checked in with the other person? that, you know, they're okay with what we're doing, that they understand where it might go and that we can say we can stop if they want to, that it's an ongoing thing. It's not just one yes. You know, it's a continual sort of thing that that we're reading each other's body language and we care about the other person. There is a thing that, you know, if you don't care about what the other person is feeling or thinking, then you don't care. You know, you're just going to carry on, plow on anyway until someone actually says, stop, stop, I hate this. You know, it shouldn't get to that point. It should be, you know, ooh. Maybe not. So and then that people aren't under the influence of drink or drugs or being pressurized or intentionally misled. So, you know, students in 2019 that we were working with came up with the um, with the thing that consent is OMFG, ongoing, mutual and freely given. And I think if you can tick those three boxes, Then you can say, yes, this was a consensual, you know, encounter. And nobody really wants to force someone to do stuff that they don't want to do. Everybody wants to have, you know, a mutually enjoyable, mutually consensual and mutually safe um, experience. And then they might say, yes, Oh, we could do that again because it was kind of cool. That's, I mean, that's a good way to be
0: leaving a sexual encounter, for sure. Yeah. I, I want to go back to the body language part of that, because that's really important. And I know Siobhan H.C., some of our work that we do it looks around verbal and non-verbal consent and the issue of trying to read consent in a situation as Siobhan said there that you know if we're not comfortable in and we're trying to figure all this out and oh my god what does this mean um we have issues with like you know we often use the example of like a smile and is a smile consent and I think you know active consent researchers found there's some interesting gender. Differences when it comes to that. So, can you walk us through that kind of verbal, non-verbal approach that we we found?
2: Yeah. So, I guess that active consent. The we're really encouraging an active approach to consent as opposed to a passive approach to consent because our research has found that a lot of people just kind of engage in this passive, non-verbal um, kind of communication practice, which can just end up leading to. Maybe unsatisfactory sexual experiences. So, we're just promoting um, that people become more vocal in their communication practices when it comes to consent. Um, but it's also recognizing within that that even if you are engaging in a verbal consent practice, there's still kind of nuance and distinction between consent and willingness. And that's really something that we are you know, not afraid to delve into and talk about with people in our programs as well, because that certainly requires kind of teasing out when it comes to developing our resources. You know, there are these very kind of subtle nuances between consent and willingness. And as you kind of mentioned earlier in our research, you do have a lot of young women kind of reporting that they might be engaging in certain sexual activities that, you know, they are consenting to you know from a legal perspective but it might not necessarily be something that they are Um, kind of wanting to do so there's kind of fine nuances between that so even though we can kind of promote these active consent um, communication practices rather than just passive consent um, it's still so important to explore with young people how you can want to have sex but not consent to it and then you can consent to sex that you that you don't want to have Um, so you know it's it's about having these kind of complicated conversations that talk about um, consent ethical status, as well as consent is just a kind of a legal status. Mm, I think that's
1: yeah, really important there's a, point, yeah. Because there's a big difference between, I mean, there's a difference between willing and wanting. Mm. And we do a lot of things that we're willing to do we may not necessarily want to do. Like, you know, I'm willing to do this podcast, but do I really deep down want to talk for ages about sexual consent? Well, actually I do, but you know, I might not want to, right? But I'd be willing to do it because I want to get the information out there Caroline isn't pressuring me. She isn't forcing me. I'm not afraid of Caroline if I actually said no. Right. So, you know, we do lots of things that we don't necessarily want to do. I might prefer to watch Netflix than, you know, play with your body. But, you know, hey, you know, well, I adore you. And, you know, that would give you pleasure. So you're not forcing me. You're not pressurizing me. You're just saying, oh, could we just do something? more oh, I'm really into you. And so I'm willing. But maybe I didn't want to at the start. So. It's very, it's very difficult, that sort of difference between willing and wanting, but I think in our resources we do make the distinction and to say we're often willing to do things we don't necessarily want to do, but you need to be aware of why you're willing to do this. Is it back to that whole thing of being pressurised Is that internalised peer pressure? You think you have to do it because someone, everybody else is doing it or is it real pressure from your partner to participate in something that you really don't want to do? And that's quite a difficult thing to work out when you're a young person starting off on, on this journey of exploring your sexuality. So it's about being clear and being honest and saying, I've never, I've no idea what that might feel like. Can we, you know, and being able to talk to each other. And it goes back why young people can't talk to each other is but back to those whole cultural norms those sexual scripts which are dictated to young people from the word go there's a whole gendered sexual script of what what blooming toys you can play with if you go into a toy shop you've got a blue aisle and a pink aisle excuse me boys might want to play with play-doh you know all of this and now they've created pink lego and duplet what is that about why can't we just have you know we are coming from basically a sex positive a non-binary a rights-based and tra- trauma-informed approach on the active consent program so we can try to sort of um, give people information that they can make more informed choices but it's very difficult in a heterosexual dominated society to actually be able to say as a young woman or as a young man ask you what are you into that's something that that often people in gay relationships find it much easier to talk about because they're liberated from these sexual scripts that they haven't been having drip, drip, drip since they were children. You know, so um, all of that. I could just go on for ages. To stop <laughs> we can, so we I, can I,
0: sense know? the passion there. Well, I, and I know, Sean HC, like you work around gender norms as well. And I think. Um, you know, it's really good on some of the active consent resources. We have the story of Jim and Claire, and that's a story where um Jim is pressured into sex by Claire. And he says yes, you know, but he he doesn't actually want to. And we ask people, what is that, you know, is that actually consent? And there's some sometimes different answers, and sometimes we ask if the gender roles are reversed, how does that go? But, like, for, for guys, you know, what are the gender norms that, that kind of stop them from... Being comfortable around communicating about consent or being confident in saying no, because I think there's a lot of guys who are coerced into saying yes, but again, because that macho stereotype of guys are always up for sex, you know, that's really harming, you know, their experiences.
2: Mm, Yeah it's not um, seen as very manly to kind of reject reject sex that's something that could be scoffed at by their peers so in that um, in that video that you're talking about it shows um, a young man resisting sex from and his female partner is kind of pushing sex Um, so in that video we're really trying to engage with participants in our workshops about the yeah the gendered ordering of that real heteronormative heterosexuality as we see as being expressed in these sexual scripts so Um, As we mentioned earlier, there's that kind of insatiable male sexual drive script and this female sexual gatekeeper script. um, And they're being challenged in this video. So we know that these conventional scripts are based on kind of essentialist notions of sexuality um, that position men as always seeking sex and women as always being this gatekeeper kind of deciding, being the one that decides whether or not he gets it. Um, So in these videos, And by engaging with participants to really unpack what we're seeing, it's just challenging some of these biological assumptions that set men and women up in these kind of binary ways. And that allows us to then challenge and explore these expectations that are of men to try and carve out some alternative ways of doing masculinity that you know maybe men don't get as much access to um and it also affords women the space to kind of be more desiring sexual subjects as well that they can kind of be seeking pleasure so it's kind of upending or trying to um challenge some of these sexual scripts um through this kind of e-learning module video that we have and that we discuss in the workshops um so again it's about kind of trying to put these power relations that are at play in a kind of a social context and we can discuss that then mm. um, with participants so it's very much then coming at it from that social lens and recognizing um that we're still living in a very kind of hyper individualized hyper sexualized context and we have to navigate our consent communication within this um very specific context mm.
0: Mm, I, th- I think I think it just it just really shows you I think your answer there is like how lacking sex education currently is when we only focus on here's the biology and maybe here's a tiny bit about how you have sex and then you can figure all that emotional stuff out yourself like that's really hard to to figure out like you said it's centuries old it's ingrained it's in our music or pop culture or porn or tv or hollywood and then all of a sudden if you're 17, 18, starting to have sex for the first time, it's like, off you go, here's here's sperm and here's an egg and here's a fallopian tube, but we won't tell you about any of the rest of the stuff. And it's like, most people don't have anything to do with fallopian tubes at the best of times, you know, so they definitely have a lot more to do with the gender stuff and that's what we're not teaching them and it's way more important. Um, Siobhan, how do we, O'Higgins, how do we, you know, really kind of revolutionise that, that sex education to be under that umbrella of positive sexual rights and include that the gender message, the social message uh,
1: and the emotional side of sex. Well, it's what's called holistic sex education, which includes all of that, how to how to initiate a relationship, how to maintain a relationship, how to look at emotions, because, you know, um, becoming intimate with someone, it's not just uh, having sexual intercourse with them, all sorts of intimacy, trusting someone wanting to touch someone, wanting to be with them, wanting to share stuff with them. It's all very important part of building respectful relationships. And it's about starting from that understanding and to put it into how do you form relationships as a child? And the problem is that we, in relation to how you be a sexual being, it's a bit like driving. Like, you know, we teach our children how to cross the road, right? We hold their hand, eventually we trust them that they're going to cross the road by themselves you know and we trust them that they can do that because they've seen other people crossing the road they've seen how it all works they've practiced it with you holding their hand all that kind of stuff when it comes to people young people exploring their sexuality they haven't got you to hold their hand you haven't had loads of conversations and they haven't seen people having real sexual intimacy Um, around them so they're looking for the entertainment industry they're looking for you know they get the idea from songs all sorts of sexual media will give them ideas of how they could be sexual which may not necessarily be be based on real emotions and respect and all of that kind of stuff so really it's about parents it's not relying on our school sex education to give us everything it's about empowering our parents who didn't get good sex education themselves to have lots of little conversations about their children about how to build relationships about what the pleasure it is that to actually share your body with someone else and that people do it for pleasure and enjoy it if they've actually communicated about what they might like and what they might not like and it's about having more than just one conversation because when you're teaching young people how to eat properly at table you don't just have one conversation where you say don't put your knife in your mouth don't talk with your mouthful. You have lots of little conversations that build up an understanding. So it's, a, you know, and it's about how you relate to your partner, how you relate to other people. And it's about respect. It's about empathy. It's about understanding boundaries from a very early age. And then people get it. You know, they children get it. Children aren't stupid, you know, and young people aren't stupid. And they are very curious. And it's their curiosity which is taking them to f- try and find out the answers that they need from all sorts of sources, which may not actually be sharing with our children the values and the understanding that we want to share. So it's really back. It's it's not easy being a parent, but um, yeah. We just do our best, and we try and get all the resources yeah. we can, and there are lots of good resources out there
0: mm, you know? about time as well. Not before, you know, well yeah. overdue at this stage as well, but I think like the the reality of that is is leaving you know when we don't have it we're leaving generations behind and we have people who you know have responded to our research and they've said I just let my partner go along as far as they want and I don't speak up for myself and um I don't say about consent I just kind of like try and you know read their body language and stuff and you know that that research about they just let their partner go as far as they want because they won't speak up um Siobhan Healy Cullen I know like you you, you've presented on this kind of area it's like that's really depressing isn't it that you know they're just going along with this stuff and not speaking up
2: yeah which again just kind of um highlights I suppose the flaws in the logic of just saying you know it's just about just saying no you know there's so much else going on in the background that allows people to yeah just engage in that kind of passive consent communication essentially which is what is happening in those instances if you're just letting people go as far as just not saying anything um so yeah I think it's about um incorporating the kind of mutuality of care I suppose in our education where you're talking about caring um for others when it comes to consent, but also kind of caring for yourself and being aware of the self-care that you need.
0: You know, and I know um, the language thing is quite important. And I know you've said it there about how just say no just doesn't really do the job. And we see that in the research. And we see that when people don't have that confidence there. Talk to me a little bit more about that coercion side of things. And especially like the gender aspect of it as well is, is really important. But how that, you know, that lack of confidence just say no isn't enough, but like, you know, I don't think people understand sometimes what a yes is and what a no is and how to freely achieve those things without coercion. I mean, you know, people struggle to recognize what sexual coercion actually is sometimes.
2: Yeah, I think, um, like often we talk about consent as a kind of a legal, as a legal concept, but I think it's also, you know, you have to, to recognize it as You know, people have more privilege and resources and kind of social capital and consent legislation and education kind of aims to protect people who have less privilege, less social capital, less resources and those people who may be more vulnerable. And so you can kind of think of coercion as having an impact or an influence on those certain kinds of vulnerabilities. And so, for example, we talk about an act of consent Like if you're inebriated or if you're intoxicated, like that's an instance of being Vulnerable. That's an instance where kind of coercion can happen, and that's something that young people can relate to. You know, a drunk person can't consent to to anything, be that sex or in COVID times, kind of a breach of their social distance. So, um, COVID has given us opportunities to to talk about these instances. Um, so it's about holding responsibility. Um, you know, to care for ourselves in those instances, but also to to care to care for others. So I think coercion can be, um, talked. About in the sense of understanding how people hold different vulnerabilities
1: I was just thinking you know we started this talking about sexual rights and when people have rights they also have responsibilities you know it is about you as as you relate to others it's not just about you so you have sexual rights but everybody has sexual rights and you have responsibility to respect other people's sexual rights as well so that's how coercion is a non-respecting someone else's sexual rights and it's about people tricking other people into doing stuff that they don't want to do or being put in a position where it's really difficult to say no so it's about not misleading people as to what you want and how you want it and all that kind of stuff and it's also about how do you deal with rejection and it's okay to say no a lot of the girls it's, it's it seems to be a girl thing but it's also a male young man thing as well that they can't say no because they have this perception that you know this is what they should be doing this is that internalized peer pressure again so it's not just that they don't know how to say no or they don't know that they can say no it's about you know not standing out by saying no or not wanting to hurt their partner's feelings as well but rejection you're not rejecting the person you're just rejecting what they want to do with you so that feeds into this you have a right but you have a responsibility they have rights they have responsibilities and I think we need to talk to that as well because you know, basically when you're, when you're pleasuring yourself, that's okay. But when you want to actually be with someone else to achieve pleasure for yourself, but it's really about sharing that pleasure with someone else. And if you can see it about it as being about sharing something lovely with someone else, rather than doing something to someone else or getting away with something with someone else, then it's just a different mindset in seeing why you would want to get involved um, in physical intimacy with someone else really.
0: The rejection yeah. part of that is is really interesting of, you know, how, even if you think of, like, a dating app or something, if you say no to a date with someone and they're, like, immediately aggressive and violently abusive, you know, to you of, like, and call you names for saying no, it's, like, Oof. okay, and they're, like, you asked me out, <laughs> like, and they're saying, oh, how terrible you are, but, like, we don't teach people how to, how to accept rejection rejection sounds like a really harsh word like it's like you can't be attractive to everyone and not everyone wants to get in your pants I'm sorry to break that news to everybody but you know we we. it's like you know I don't know i and to think of a food example like butter or something like nobody mm-hmm. not everyone likes butter uh, and there's very fancy types of butter out there that's an analogy that isn't going anywhere but you know what I mean mm-hmm. like we can't there's not everyone for everyone kind of thing and Siobhan Healy, Cullen, I know um you know again that, that the gender stuff comes into that you're my gender person today um <laughs> <laughs> but like how do we work around that part of things?
2: Yeah I was reminded there when Siobhan was talking about the um The kind of mutuality of care and um, really shifting again from that idea of the individual to the collective. And I've heard the, you know, the question of who do I want to be as a sexual kind of citizen? It's about shifting that to how do I want to live with others as a sexual citizen? So, again, it's not just kind of thinking about. Um, yourself and your own individual actions, but also just um, thinking about yourself as being interconnected um, within your community and, and society. And I think that's a nice kind of subtle shift in the question. So it's actually about having a rights-based approach, but I think in ways that kind of extends to a justice oriented approach to consent and, and other topics that are related to sexual health as well. Um, so yeah, I think we can we can both draw on kind of rights-based discourse, but also kind of justice oriented um, discourse as well when it comes to topics like consent
0: absolutely and, and the health part on that is interesting um i know it's o'higgins you know we have an article coming out soon on the journal.ie on the 30th and in that you write that ensuring young people experience good sexual health is a key public health concern so talk us through that what you mean by the public health aspect of that
1: well that's a global thing because they're, you know, as I said, you know, from the definition of sexual health from the World Health Organization, it is about positive sexual rights and being able to explore your sexuality in um, ways that you're not feeling coerced or pushed. And it's not just about not picking up a sexually transmitted infection or not having an unplanned pregnancy. It's about exploring one's sexuality in a mutually consensual, mutually enjoyable and safe way. And in terms of a public health concern is, as we know, all these stories in the paper, all these issues, the stats that are coming out, the statistics we found about the level of harassment and abuse and um, even going down to the level of rape that young young people are actually experiencing and possibly not knowing that that was actually wrong or that, that, they're, that they're actually being abused is really, really worrying. So it's about how we, we push that forward to actually... Um, educate young people as to what's okay what what in our society is okay and what's not okay because how you explore your sexuality does change depending on what society you're in depending on you know 200 years ago is very different in how people express their sexuality as is it, it is now but being aware of on a basic level it is about being aware of your own boundaries and what's okay for you and respecting those of other people and when you come down to gender, this whole gendered issue, when you look at what we've educated, we've kind of done pretty well educating girls to think that they can be whoever they want to be, they can explore things, they can use language, we can be astronauts, we can be everything, which has changed enormously from 100 years ago as to where, you know, feminism had had brought a realisation for young girls as to what their potential was. But for boys, we've kind of stuck. We haven't moved them forward in the same level and you know, and what what I mean Bernay Brown says, you know, it's about boys not being able to express their vulnerability. And, you know, boys, you know, there was research done in um, America around gender and, and young people's perceptions of, you know, what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman. And a third of the boys said that they had to suck it up and they couldn't express their emotions. You know, they couldn't show that they were unsure or that they were vulnerable in any way. And, you know, we're if we deny everybody, young boys, especially you know, their capacity to explore vulnerability as adults, then it hurts them and it hurts their romantic partners because boys are not just going to be boys. Boys are going to be men and they're going to be our partners and our colleagues and our fathers and our brothers, you know, all of that. So everything changes. That's the thing. It's not a static thing with children. They grow into being adults and we need to give them as much information to support them to be responsible and caring and respectful Um, sexual beings if that's what they want to do and also to say you know you don't have to touch anybody or let anybody touch you if you don't want to that's okay too we need to say that as well it's not compulsory to be sexual if you don't want to be and some some people don't want to be at all there's an asexuality you know that that are quite happy in themselves so you need to explore all those different forms of sexuality as well and to make people aware that it's okay to just not want to do that.
0: Absolutely, for sure. Siobhan Cullen, your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think certainly
2: there's been more recognition recently that men have been left behind in terms of kind of carving out various ways for them to do masculinity and there has perhaps been more developments over the years in the ways that that women can kind of embody and express different kinds of femininities. But even within that, I think it's still about being conscious and aware that we're now living in this kind of like post-feminist era. Um, And so that's essentially my understanding of it, is that it essentially means that we're living in a culture that kind of understands women, like women's empowerment is being enabled through their sexuality. And so it's reinforcing this idea that women's bodies are you know open to view and that's legitimate because that's their choice you know women are choosing to be looked at and so on the one hand we kind of have this you know girl power attitude that girls have all of these different ways that they can be a woman now um and yet that kind of bumps up against this sexist world that they're still living in and so how do how do we talk to young women about consent in that context? You know, where they're they're living in the kind of spice girls, um, go girl kind of attitude um era, yet at the same time, um, you know our research and other research internationally would suggest that they're still living in a world that is, you know, still got a lot of gender inequality. Um, So I think there's probably still work to do for both young men and young women in terms of carving about more kind of equitable ways that they can enact femininity and masculinity.
1: Isn't it about raising the boat for everybody? Exactly. You know, same information, same understanding of how to explore themselves as sexual or non-sexual beings, however they want to do that and to Mm. understand masculinity and femininity. It's not on a binary. There are all sorts of nuance. And, you know, and you're not wrong if you choose to, you know, be a bit more masculine today or a bit more feminine tomorrow and all of that kind of stuff. So there's an awful lot of freedom out there You know, you're not being judged so much as you were like 30 years ago, you know, but still young people are very much constrained by what they think other people will think of them by, you know, the gaze of others and the judgment of others. But that is one of the things about being a a teenager. You don't know who the hell you are. You're trying to explore all sorts of things and find out how to be. And that's why the sources of information, we need to have credible sources of information for our young people that are easy to access because they can access sexual media like that. So we as adults or people who have knowledge that will be useful to them we need to be accessible to young people as accessible as sexual media is to them and to be able to present these ideas and this information in ways that is engaging and interesting because looking at porn or all sorts of sexual media it's 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 engaging for them so how do we provide information in engaging ways that are relevant to them and it's not telling them what to do and all that kind of stuff so that's one of the things that's um at the active consent resources are built on working with young people to get the language to get the tone to get the way to impart information that will be of use to them in ways that they will find accessible and acceptable and go yeah gee oh yeah okay so i'll think about that no one's telling me what to do and what not to do with that information, I can make more informed choices and um, that'll imp- they feel empowered, hopefully. And yeah, so that's the data that we get f- because we evaluate everything we do and we pilot everything we do, we pre-pilot everything we do to make sure we can hit all those boxes because otherwise, you know we're just wasting our time in creating other resources that basically look good to grown-ups and middle-aged people like me, but in fact don't actually resonate with young people at all.
0: No absolutely not and that's I think that is the the future of sex education as well of having young people so involved in that process too as stakeholders you know they should be getting decent quality information that is relevant and is fact-based and trauma-informed as well so we will hopefully have that day very very soon and it is on the way but we are getting there and especially the work of active consent is working towards making that a lovely reality in Ireland so um thank you both so much for your time today and where can people find you if they want to find out more about the kind of work that Active Consent does
1: well it's all on the Active Consent website or you can um, email me we're we're based in NY Galway but we're a national program Um, I don't do social media because I'm too old uh, (laughs) you know so I have no presence at all like so there's no point in trying to find me (laughs) anything like that that's Siobhan now Higgins talking but you know so yeah we're we're both a bit like that the two Siobhan's are a bit like that you know so you can email us um or you can um contact us through the active consent um website and active consent at NUI Galway you know and we'll always talk to anybody perfect (laughs) there's active
0: consent on um facebook twitter and instagram and there that's just active consent on all those platforms which is very handy to remember for that one so um fab listen thank you so much for coming along today and yeah hopefully we will make this a lovely reality very very soon across across the world not just in irish society so we'll get there um so thanks mel um and to all the listeners thanks mel for listening in if you want to check out the hashtag i do consent there's loads and loads of lovely information um about consent because november 30th is the international day of consent so get on that and learn all the lovely things um about consent and share them with your friends and everybody in the world we just make this lovely consent culture happen asap so thanks, Mel, and I'll chat to you next
1: week.